Ecclesiastes chapter four, beginning in verse nine. Solomon, the preacher, writes. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up again. If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. In chapter four, Solomon wonders whether or not riches trump relationships. Solomon sees that in the end, the rich who are attached to their riches, but severed from their relationships, suffer a genuine emptiness and a real loss. As a matter of fact, in chapter four, we're going to see a series of statements where they use the term better. Look in verse three, where it says, Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. In verse six, better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. And now another better Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And so Solomon As he conducts the inquiry, remember what we've already learned, that the book of Ecclesiastes is answering a big question, the significance of life, human life, meaningful life. And in our life, is friendship meaningful? Let me ask you a question. Do you value friendship? What importance do you place on people? Do you see yourself and your life better with people? Or are you bitter because the people you work with or share your life with, that the people that you get close to wind up making life way more difficult for you than without you? The preacher offers a kind of survival counsel for the person who's facing life by themselves. He says, guess what? It's not worth living. Two are better than one. As a matter of fact, if you look at these four verses, you'll you'll notice that that a pattern begins to emerge. In verse 9, we work harder. In verse 10, we walk farther. Verse 11, we warm each other. Verse 12, we watch out for each other. So he's building his case. He's building his argument for the reality of why friends are better than not having friends. It was a man named Balthasar Gracian who wrote... There is no wilderness like a life without friends. Friendship multiplies blessings and minimizes misfortunes. It is a unique remedy against adversity and it soothes the soul. So why would someone choose the wilderness of loneliness rather than the rich harvest fields of friendship? 
What is it about life and about our circumstances that creates a mechanism where we draw a circle around our life and we don't want anyone to penetrate that circle, to puncture the safety and the security of what we think is our life? I remember hearing Billy Graham ask a crowded stadium, are you lonely? He said, American people are the loneliest people in the world. I thought he was doing a really bad Barbara Streisand. But what he's saying is really true. John Milton commented, loneliness is the first thing which God's eye named not good. You'll remember in the book of Genesis, God created Adam. God created this wonderful world. He filled it with animals. Adam experienced fellowship and relationship with God. He was surrounded by living creatures in primeval splendor. But then God said, but it's not good for a man to be alone. He had said that the sun and the moon and the stars and everything in the world was good. It was good. It was good. All of these things were good. And so the first testimony that he makes concerning something that is not good is for human beings to be living a life of isolation and emptiness. H.G. Wells, the prop. The popular author of War of the Worlds and The Time Machine, he's written so many great books on his 65th birthday. He said, I'm 65 years old and I am lonely and I have never found peace. Mother Teresa said loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted. Is the most terrible form of poverty. She, a woman who lived in a world that was marked by poverty. But what was more impoverishing than being all by yourself? Queen Victoria, when her husband died, the first words when she when she was brought with the news that her husband had passed away, she said, there's no one left to call me Victoria. Status. Notoriety. Riches. Titles. There's no substitute for companionship. There's no substitute for friendship. And so when we ask and answer the question, why are people lonely? There's many, many answers that I would I I can suggest to you. But let me begin at the beginning at what the Bible suggests is the ultimate answer to the question of why are people lonely? It's perhaps because sin builds walls rather than bridges. When Adam and Eve disobeyed in the garden, a wall went up. When we live in a world where because of sin and because of circumstances, we build this barrier to keep people away. We sometimes elect to live by ourselves, secluded and secluding ourselves to the point that no one knows what's going on inside of our head or inside of our heart. And then we don't share our needs. We don't share our frustration. No one knows our pain. We begin to think that no one 
one understands. How can anyone understand what's going on inside of my heart? And then we begin to resent them or even be angry towards them. How could you not know? How could you not see? How could you not understand what's going on inside of me? That's why the writer of Proverbs, this writer in Proverbs 18:24 says, "A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother." This is what the Bible says. Do you want friendship? Then you have to become a friend. Do you desire companionship and friendship and relationship? Now, here's the odd thing. People may want to be friends with God, but they can't be friends with God because sin has separated us from God. But the Bible, the whole Bible is a book about how you can become God's friend. The whole Bible has been written for the specific purpose of causing and creating people who are estranged from God to become friends with God. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that sin is the barrier. And Jesus is the bridge. And that Jesus is willing to to forgive you. To love you. That's the whole point of the gospel. In order to create a mechanism whereby you can have friendship with God. Here's what you have to be willing to do. You have to be willing to abandon your sin. But more than that, you have to be willing to abandon your unbelief. Your unbelief about Jesus. You have to be willing to believe him. And guess what? The Bible says something remarkable will happen. Friendships are like a garden and they have to be tended. And few things poison a friendship more than when we allow self-pity to become the basis of our friendship. If self-pity is the basis of our friendship, it will poison the friendship. It doesn't seem right to criticize a person who's unaware of your plight. And so sometimes... We have to do what we have to do. The Bible says for the sinner, we have to admit that we're a sinner and that we need a savior. In friendship, we have to admit that there's something wrong. That there's something empty and that loneliness is there. In Romans chapter five, verses seven and eight, Paul writes, he says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die yet. Perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ dies for us. In order to communicate that friendship. And so in verse nine, as The preacher, Solomon, is contrasting the person who's lived all by themselves. Now he he comes to this settled conclusion, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. In other words, he goes, okay, what are the benefits of friendship? What are the benefits of relationship? What are the benefits of allowing people in my life? The preacher makes an obvious point. He he, He begins by saying, okay, let's just do the math here. Two workers can get more work done than one worker. Someone might say, well, what about when it comes time to divide the profits? If I do all the work, I get all the profit. But then 
He reminds himself that even if you have to divide the profit, guess what? There's more profit to be made because two people can do a lot more, so much more that even when they begin to divide the profits, there's more to be made. And also, when it's time to divide the sorrow, it's easier to bear. When you're dealing with hardship and pain, you can begin to share that hardship and pain. Now, when the job is difficult, you'll still have someone to encourage you. That's the idea. Hey, things are getting hard and things are getting difficult and things are getting painful. But guess what? You have someone to encourage you to keep going, to keep going, to keep going. The cooperation is contrasted with the miserable person. We've already seen them. Remember in verses seven and eight, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. It says in verse seven, there's one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Here's what Solomon does. He's given us a dose in the previous passage of the person who lives for themselves, who loves only themselves, who desires only themselves and only what them, themselves can get. In the previous passage, the person at the top is compulsive and competitive and oppressive, achieving what the world calls success. Hey, I have everything that I need. I have everything that I want. Except one close friend, one companion. And throughout the passage, we hear the echoes of the lone wolf, the lone ranger, the person who would rather work alone. Look, I can get a lot more done without you. Travel alone. Look, all you're doing is you're weighing me down. I can get there faster. You're just going to slow me down. But Solomon is going to make an argument, a powerful argument of why it makes more sense to be together than to be alone. Thomas Ford, the car manufacturer, wrote, my best friend is the one who brings out the best in me. Who's your best friend? Who brings up the best in you? Hopefully, if you're a Christian, your best friend is Jesus. What a friend I have in Jesus. Jesus loves you. He walks with you. By the way, does Jesus bring out the best in you? I think he does. Jesus is committed to you. He's bringing out the best in you. As he's filling your heart with love and joy and peace. How is it that marriage and friendship sometimes bring out the worst in people? How is that possible? Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your friend, they're not supposed to bring out the worst in you. They're supposed to bring out the best in you. Sharing the load means sharing the benefits. And it's supposed to make the journey and life more pleasant and more prosperous. 
And think about that for just a moment. Friends can expand our vision. Friends can provide a fresh perspective for us. Objectivity, a deeper awareness, a more clear and honest evaluation about ourself. Now the preacher will convincingly argue the benefits We have mutual support and encouragement when we're weak in verse 10. We have mutual support when we are vulnerable in verse 11. We have mutual protection when we are attacked in verse 12. So look again in verse 10. We walk further. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. Look what it says. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. For he has no one to help him up. In the ancient world, there were well-worn paths. But there were also new trails. Roads weren't paved. Neglected paths could become dangerous places for weary travelers. Even the most experienced hiker could slip or fall or trip on a rock. And even in our day, if you decide... To go hiking, what's the first advice that they give you? Is it better to hike alone or to hike with somebody else? What's the answer? If you're smart, you're going to hike with somebody else. You might go, I like to, to hike alone. Well, yeah, right. Good luck with that. Most of the people who get in trouble out on the trail, they're all by themselves. And few things are more rewarding than when a friend pulls you up and out of the pit. But there's a spiritual application, isn't there? What about when we spiritually stumble? What about it when we get tripped up in, in life's circumstances? By the way. If you are alive and hearing this message at this very moment, chances are you've had setbacks and stumbles. As a matter of fact, in Galatians chapter six, verses one and two, Paul writes, he says, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you should also be tested or tempted. Bear one another's burdens so that you can fulfill the law of Christ. The benefit of friendship. If you stumble, if you fall. Isn't it great to have someone who can say. You know what? God loves you and Jesus loves you. Do you realize that he's willing to forgive you? Jesus is completely aware of your circumstance and failure. But guess what? He's willing to forgive you and to restore you. There's life beyond failure. Even when you've been tripped up, even when you've made a horrible mistake. Jesus is willing to pick you up and take you back. Walter Winchell wrote, quote, a real friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world walks out. Have you ever said? I don't need you. I don't need you and I don't want you. I don't welcome your presence and I don't want you here. I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. And you may never have said that to God. 
You may never have verbalized it that way, but guess what? The moment that you decide to wake up in the morning and you don't pray, the moment that you decide to say, God, I don't need God. I don't want God. God doesn't matter to me. If you're a person who never experiences weakness, then you'll never need a friend. If you're a person who never has a personal time of failure, then guess what? You don't need a friend. If you can count on that, you will never stumble and you will never fall. Then guess what? You probably don't need a a friend. But if there's ever a time when you're challenged, if ever a crisis occurs, I think, you know, it is a test of friendship. It is a test of friendship. We walk further when we have someone to walk with us. That's the point that he's making. And we warm each other. Look at verse 11. It says, again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone or all by themselves? And you have to understand something. The days in Israel are pleasant, but the nighttime temperatures can sometimes be very cold. As a matter of fact, ancient Israel along the coast of the Mediterranean was very much like the place where I grew up. I grew up in Southern California. Southern California has is a strip of land that goes from north to south that 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 on the west side faces the Pacific Ocean. And in California, 68 degrees, 70 degrees. It's beautiful all year round. Now, there can be parts of California that can be very, very hot, like the Mojave Desert. They can be very, very cold, like Wrightwood up on Mount Baldy. Now, I don't know if you have ever camped out all night without the benefit of a sleeping bag or a blanket. I wish I could say, well, I've never done that, but I have done that. When I was a kid, I hitchhiked to Wrightwood and I didn't have any place to stay. And I found myself sleeping in the middle of the night on top of a cement table. And the temperature in Wrightwood at that elevation dropped dramatically. I've never been more cold in my life. (laughs) There is only one way to be warm by yourself. You have to take extra gear. You have to make sure you have a blanket or a sleeping bag with you. But what about those cold moments in life? That's part of the point that I think that he's making. What about the cold moments in life when you are left exposed and vulnerable? Again, he says, again, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. Clearly, there is the physical reality that two people sleeping together with no sexual thought whatsoever, human beings generate heat. And so that's part of the point. Children sometimes experience anxiety over the separation of their parents. So when are you most likely to experience sheer terror of the thought of being all by yourself? I think that we've all had lonely days. My first recollection of a lonely day was when I started kindergarten. Do you remember the day that you go to kindergarten, your mom drops you off and you're in a classroom with people that you've never met before? There's a sense of terror that grips you. 
We've all had those kinds of days. It it might have been the first day at a new school. It might have been the first Sunday at a new church. It could even be the first day on a new job or the first day that you're waiting all by yourself in a hospital waiting room. And you don't know the doctors and you don't know the nurses and you don't know anyone there. And there's this sense of dread. And terror. I recently read the story of a man who whose loved one committed suicide. And the man felt alone and terrible. And he made an appointment to see the pastor and the pastor did his best to comfort him and give him a few Bible verses. And the man wrote that he was crushed because what he really wanted wasn't just simply words of comfort, that he wanted someone's touch, someone's embrace. He needed someone to be physically present with him as he was going through this terrible circumstance. Life is filled with setbacks, sometimes terrors. We feel vulnerable. We feel exposed. We feel unsure. We feel unprotected. And sometimes the presence of just one friend can make the terror Bearable. The chill. Bearable. Because sometimes a true friend will direct you away from evil and point you to the Lord and say, guess what? There's a way out of the darkness and into the light. There's a way out of the loneliness. There's a way out of the guilt. There's a way out of whatever it is that you're going through and whatever you're experiencing. And so the writer says in verse 12, look what it says. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. Now, you've got to understand something in the ancient world and parts of the modern world. It was dangerous. As a matter of fact, a few months ago, when (laughs) my wife and I were going to Mexico, my father in law died and we needed to go to Mexico in order to settle some of the affairs of his estate. And people would say, where are you going in Mexico? Don't you realize it's dangerous there? I hope you're not going by yourself. Are there parts of the world in which we live that's dangerous? Are there parts even of Denver? Are there neighborhoods that you are better off not being in after dark? The world can be a dangerous place. And by the way, in the ancient world, it wasn't unusual for people to travel in groups for safety and for fellowship. When people would go from one place to another, they would gather together again to find companionship and friendship. And that was part of the point. Life isn't always a safe place to live in. The world isn't always a safe place to live in. And life doesn't always create a mechanism of safety. And by the way, you may be able to take care of yourself. 
You may be able to handle yourself. You might be trained in weapons. You may have went to the military. You may have grown up in, in a circumstance where you know how to take care of yourself when, when things are really, really difficult. But here's the point. That no matter how big you are, there's always somebody who's bigger. No matter how well armed you are, there's always somebody who's a little more well armed than you are. And no matter how secure you are, there are always people who will come, who will try to take advantage of you. And so this is part of the point that he's making. Sometimes we need friends. We need true companions who can come to our aid, who can render assistance. Now, I want you to follow the progression here just for a moment. The preacher begins with the number one in verse eight. He moves to the number two in verse nine. And then he closes out the section in verse 12 with the number three. Now, in the ancient world, people braided hair and they braided rope. I remember when I was about 10 years old, my uncle taught me how to braid with copper wire. How you, you know, you put wires over so that you can make a braid. Now, girls learn really early how to braid hair. What is the value of braiding hair? It makes it stronger a little bit, doesn't it? In the ancient world, people would braid rope. They would braid other kinds of things, plants, in order to actually make clothes. The preacher has something way more in mind than hair or rope. He's presenting an image of people who are woven together. And by the way, when you weave hair, guess what? The hair has to make contact. When you weave rope, the rope has to make contact. And when you weave a life together, guess what? There's going to be contact. There's going to be a sense of intimacy and and proximity that for some people may be very, very uncomfortable. But he's presenting an image of people who are woven together for the purpose of forming friendship and fellowship and a strong bond of relationship. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we all have private and public enemies. The Bible speaks of. The attacks of Satan, the allure of the world, the constant complaint that comes from our flesh. We have enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. We have friends, the father, the son, the Holy Spirit. By the way, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Think this through. Remember what the Bible says? The Father has overcome the world. The Bible says that Jesus has overcome Satan. The Bible says that God has given you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. So that the desires of your flesh can be held in check. Now, if the Father and the Son... And the Holy Spirit are on your side. 
That's a threefold cord that isn't easily broken. Think about this for just a moment. In a world where we face spiritual forces of wickedness, the lies of the enemy, the intimidations of worldly people, assaults on every corner. Doesn't it make sense to have a friend? We have a friend in Jesus to deal with the spiritual issues. But sometimes you need someone that you can pick up the phone and that you know that they're going to be there for you. By the way, the Old Testament is filled with illustrations of friends. We all know the story of Elijah and Elisha from 1 Kings chapter 19. You know the story. Remember, Elijah has a fight with the prophets of Baal. You all know the story, how they come and they say, look, if God is God, we're going to have a showdown. If if Baal is God, then you're going to call on him and he's going to answer you. But if God is God, I'm going to call on him. And you remember the story, how they cut themselves, they yell, they scream, they offer this sacrifice. They, the, 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 the challenge is, OK, whichever God is the real God will call fire down from heaven to consume the sacrifice. And the one who answers by trial is the true God. And the prophets of Baal, they moan, they, they ache, they yell, they cut themselves all day long. No answer. Elijah comes out. He takes the sacrifice. He soaks the wood in water. He soaks the sacrifice to make it even more difficult. He calls on the Lord and fire comes from heaven and consumes it. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And you remember the story of the double threat of Ahab and Jezebel, how Jezebel threatened to kill him and he fled into the wilderness and he begged God to take his life. And do you remember how God answered his prayer? He sent him a supernatural provision to provide for him, but he also sent him a friend, Elisha. He answered his prayer supernaturally by making a provision and what you and I might call naturally by providing a friend. In this whole difficulty, God renews Elijah's strength. He renews Elijah's vision. And think about this for a moment. A close companion can calm your fear when the waters of, your, of, of our soul have been stirred and troubled by life's pain and circumstance. And you remember the story of Ruth and Naomi and Ruth chapter one. Remember, Naomi was a godly woman with with two sons and her husband died and then her two sons died. She was widowed. She had the two daughter in laws and one of them was Ruth. And you will remember that Naomi said, look, ladies, you're still young. You can still get a date. Look, go home, go home to your own mother while you're still young and attractive and you can make a new life for yourself. Do you remember Ruth's answer? Ruth refused to leave her. She promised to stay with her. She promised to stay with her until life's evening becomes life's dark. And Naomi experienced Ruth's love and support and encouragement and commitment when she needed the help the most. Friends build bridges of hope and reassurance when we're 
exposed and vulnerable. And who can forget Jonathan and David? Before we were in Ecclesiastes, remember we were in First and Second Samuel. In First Samuel chapter 18, it says you'll, you'll recall the boys, Jonathan and David, formed a friendship after David slew Goliath. And Jonathan's father burned with jealousy and he feared David and then he came to hate David and then he plotted to kill David. And he, he became so enraged with anger and jealousy that he was even willing to put his own children at risk. And throughout the whole ordeal, Jonathan remained a loyal and true friend to David. And even though he remained a loyal and true friend to David, he never dishonored his father in the, in the process. You know, friends take our part when others are trying to tear us apart. And that's the point. It's short. It's sweet. It's simple. Someone who shall remain anonymous wrote a little ditty called the A to Z of friendship. It goes like this. A. A friend accepts you as you are. A friend, B, believes in you. C, calls you just to say hi. D, doesn't give up on you. E, envisions the whole of you, even the unfinished parts. F, forgives your mistakes. G, gives unconditionally. H, helps you. I, invites you over. J, just be with you. K, keeps you close at heart. L, loves you for who you are. M, makes a difference in your life. N, never judges. O, offers support. A friend P, picks you up. A friend Q, quiets your fears. A friend R, raises your spirits. S, says nice things. T, tells you the truth when you need to hear it. U, understands you. V, values you. W, walks beside you. X, explains things to you that you don't understand. Okay, just give me a little break. Y, yells loud enough so you can listen. And Z, zaps you back to reality. You know what? The preacher's right. Two are better than one. The preacher's right. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's a dangerous world. And Satan is committed to your destruction. But guess what? It's a wonderful world. God has given you a provision in Christ Jesus the Lord. You have a friend in heaven. But you have a friend inside of your heart. You may be living in a circumstance where your heart is dark and lonely and empty and friendship isn't really a part of your life. 
But if you've ever wanted the emptiness to go away. If you've ever wanted the loneliness to go away. Then you need to make sure that you have a right relationship with God and Jesus Christ. But you also need to obey the scripture when it says, do you want a friend? Then be a friend. And in order to be a friend. You have to be willing to do what friends do. Help. Invite. Be with you. Keep you close to heart. Love you for who you are. Make a difference in your life. Offer support. Quiet your fear. Raise your spirits. Say nice things. And tell the truth. When you need to hear it. Be with you. Walk with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray for each and every person who's here. Lord, I pray for that person who has a wonderful friendship with you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. But Lord, I also pray for that person whose heart is empty. And whose life is lonely. Lord, I pray for the person who has allowed sin to become a snare. And to trip them up. Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, you will speak to that heart. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you love them so much and that you desire to be their friend. That you're willing to give them the strength and the courage to walk away from sin and to walk into the arms of Jesus. Lord, I pray for that person. I pray that they would make the journey from loneliness to friendship with you. From emptiness to being filled with joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray I pray that you would be with them. And Lord, that when they stumble and when they fall, they have someone who can lift them up. So that one day, one day in the not too distant future, they can be the person who's lifting another person out of the darkness and into the light. Out of that horrible pit. Onto a strong, firm rock called Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen.